Um, okay, so we're going to be looking into the book uh, of Zechariah. We're going to be going through it roughly uh, in order through the book. Um, with most of the prophets we've looked at over the last few months, uh, one of the big questions we've been asking is, when was it written? What was the context? And we've been frustrated by the sort of short beginnings that don't really tell you very much about uh, what is happening. Now, with Zechariah, we know exactly when it was written. October, November time, 520 BC. We can be that precise. It was the time when the exiles had returned from Babylon and begun to build the temple, as we've just been seeing in Ezra. But then they face opposition, and they stop building the temple. The problem that we have with Zechariah is not when it was written, but when it was written about. That's the problem that we've got. We have the context of the return from exile. We have the context of the temple being built. But Zechariah deals with both the present, the future, and the distant future. And it's not always clear as you go through the book when he's talking about on top of that, it's written in visions that, for the most part, are left unexplained. The first half, chapters 1 to 8, is weird, but it's, because it's written in an unfamiliar format. But actually, the ideas, as you go through it, they're actually fairly simple or, or clear ideas. And there are clear links that you can see to the temple builders in Jerusalem as they seek to build the temple. Because that's what this book is for. It's to motivate them to keep building. The second half is, of the book is trickier especially the last chapter. Uh, Martin Luther, the German reformer, wrote two commentaries on Zechariah. The first one skipped chapter 14 altogether with no comment, just stopped it at the end of chapter 13. The second one also skipped chapter 14, but he added, here in this chapter, I give up, for I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. Well, this evening, we're going to give it a try and like fools, rush in where even the impetuous Luther fears to tread. Uh, if you want any expansion on any of these, please go to Steve Orr's talks, uh, which are excellent and available on the website, though he hasn't got to chapter 14 yet, so you'll have to wait. But first of all, tentative, uh, sorry, uh, the relatively easy bit, faithfulness in the present. This is really chapters 1 to 8. These chapters are written to encourage them to build the temple. They'd stopped building because of opposition, and this is written to tell them to keep going. And we need to bear that in mind as we go through the visions. Chapters 1 to 6 give the message that Zechariah wants ringing in. Sorry, chapter 1, verses 1 to 6 uh, give the, uh, the message that Zechariah wants ringing uh, in their ears as they go through this, as they build uh, the temple. Uh, 1 to 6 sort of give you an overview of what is happening uh, in the book. Let me read them uh, to you. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, I call him Darius, but Darius works as well, uh, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus, says, uh, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. He wants them to return to himself. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Get building the temple, get doing what you're supposed to be doing. But he sends nine visions to hammer home what he's saying. Uh, there's really eight visions and then a sort of bonus one at the end. The first eight visions form a sort of sandwich or chiasm, uh, if you want the proper terms. They come in pairs and match up. So you get two lots, first of all, of four horsemen. Uh, that's chapter 1, 7 to 17, and 6, 1 to 8. 
These four horsemen reappear in a slightly different form in the book of Revelation as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But in this vision, they are patrolmen, patrolling the four corners of the earth for the Lord. They're called the four winds of the earth in the second vision. And they picture God's control over the created order and his control over the movements of people across the earth, especially the people into exile and out of it again. And in light of this vision, God promises a restoration of Jerusalem to bring his people home there, as he'd already begun to do in Zechariah's day. God is promising that will continue on. The second and seventh vision, sort of a step into the sandwich, that sounds a bit weird, but uh, a step in, really speak about the exile in Babylon itself. That's chapters 1, 18 to 21, and 5, 5 to 11. The exile to Babylon is pictured in the seventh vision uh, as a, basket, a woman in a basket. The wickedness of Judah is sort of pictured as this woman in a basket that is flown away um, into the land of Shinar, which is Babylon. It's a reminder of the reason that they were sent into exile for their wickedness. In the second vision, Babylon is pictured as four horns, the sort of strength idea, who scatter Judah across the empire. But then the Lord sends four craftsmen, the Persians, to terrify and cast down the horns. And of course, it was the Persians who allowed Judah to return, a reminder that God is directing those empires. In the third and sixth visions, we see a purified, God-centered Jerusalem. That's chapter 2, 1 to 13, and 5, 1 to 4. Vision three is a vision of a man measuring Jerusalem, and God promises in that one that he will dwell in their midst. Vision six is the vision of a flying scroll sent by God to rid the land of thieves and liars. The word of God there is pictured purifying his people, which again is what we see beginning to happen in the book of Nehemiah as the law is read and the people change in this generation. The two central visions are linked together too, and they're reprised then in the ninth vision. They're to do with the priesthood and the kingdom. Uh, that's uh, chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, 14. The central visions picture a purified priesthood. Joshua, the high, priest of the, or the high priest's son of the day, is given clean clothes to wear, like they're being purified. They also speak of the coming one. Uh, one known as the branch who will restore all things. Zerubbabel is spoken of here, a descendant of David, and Joshua, the high priest, so sort of priesthood and kingdom, are pictured as two olive trees providing oil for the lamps of the temple. Both the kinghood and the priesthood will come together to see the temple maintained. Which leads to the ninth vision, the sort of one on the end. Here we really have the vision of the priest's king in the temple in chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. Zechariah is told to get a crown and to crown Joshua. Even though he's a priest, he's called the branch, and we're told that he will rule from the temple. The crown will be in the temple. A priest's king will rule. And of course, this points forward to Jesus, the branch, the priest king, whose name in Hebrew is Joshua, which is the name of the priest he's to crown. The building of the temple then is intricately linked with the coming of the king, the Messiah. So the message to the people is in light of what we're doing, in light of the big picture that I've painted for you, keep building. And really, the key verse for the first hearers is, is verse 15 of chapter 6. Verse 15 of chapter 6 says this, And those who are far off shall come, and shall help to build the temple of the Lord, 
and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. They're to carry on building. They're to obey God's voice and build the temple. Chapters 7 to 8 then deal with a question of continuing to fast, to mourn the destruction of the temple. Should they carry on doing it when they're rebuilding it? Quick answer, no, because you're rebuilding it, so stop mourning. Long answer, listen to Steve Dawes' uh, excellent talks on those passages uh, there. That's chapters 7 and 8. Okay, now for the trickier half. Hope for the future is what we see in 9 to 14. The mood sort of changes in 9 to 14. What we have is a collection of oracles by Zechariah. It's worded slightly differently. It's possibly written much later in Zechariah's life than the first half of the book. And whilst it's tricky, some parts actually are very well known to us if you read through the chapters. Because they're quoted to us in the New Testament. Zechariah 9 verse 9, the king comes to Zion, humble and riding on a donkey. Zechariah 11 verse 13, 30 pieces of silver are thrown into the house of the Lord. Zechariah 12 verse 10, the people looking on those whom they have pierced. Zechariah 13, verse 7, the shepherd being struck and the sheep being, shat, uh, being scattered. All these we actually see in the life and ministry of Jesus. There are original contexts and partial fulfillments of many of these verses. Steve has been helpfully showing us the struggle Israel had in the period between the two testaments with the Greeks. I must admit, I struggle with those kind of fulfillments between the testaments because it's my conviction that we shouldn't need a history degree to be able to understand scripture. On the other hand, the invasion by the Greeks is in scripture, plainly in Daniel 8, Daniel 10, Daniel 11, and oh yeah, in Zechariah itself. Zechariah 9, verse 13, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greeks, and wield you like a warrior's sword. But clearly the way that the New Testament uses this, whatever the particularities of the original context, it does point us to Jesus. And in chapters 9 to 11, we see that he will be, firstly, a rejected Messiah. That's really 9 to 11. Chapter 9 speaks of judgment on Judah's enemies, but salvation coming from a righteous king mounted on a donkey who will restore the people's fortunes, who will make the people jewels in his crown. In chapters 10 and 11, he speaks out against Judah's leaders as bad shepherds. And Zechariah is told to play the part of a shepherd. He actually gets a job as a shepherd for a month. And he gets hold of two staffs that he's to use. One he calls favor and one he calls union. And after a month, he quits. He leaves the sheep to their own devices. He breaks the staff of favor and announces that the covenant has been broken and annulled. He breaks the staff of union and declares that the brotherhood of Israel and Judah is annulled. He goes to the sheep traders and asks for his wages. What is this shepherd worth to them? And they give him 30 pieces of silver, which he throws to the potter in the house of the Lord, the price that Judas paid for the Lord Jesus, which is also given to a potter. The good shepherd then is rejected by the sheep and by the leaders. The king who comes humble and mounted on a donkey will be spurned. But this does not thwart God's plans. In fact, the rejected Messiah brings about a great rescue. That's what we see in chapters 12 to 14. In chapter 12, God speaks about the restoration of the house of David and a rescue that God will bring about through this house. 
The house of David shall be like God, it says in verse 8. And there will be repentance of the people. Spirit-empowered repentance towards the one that they have pierced. Which again, the New Testament makes very clear, is Christ. According to John, this happened when Christ died on the cross. He quotes this in John 19. And we realize the extent to which this Messiah, this good shepherd, was rejected. On that day, chapter 13, it says a fountain is opened for the cleansing of the people from sin and uncleanness. And again, we see in the New Testament that the fountain is opened in Christ's side. The water and the blood from his wounded side bringing cleansing uh, for our sin and forgiveness. It tells us on that day, idolatry will disappear from God's people. Prophets will no longer be needed as God's purposes have come to pass. And in such a way that prophets will hide themselves. The way that God has acted will will come as a surprise almost. The prophets didn't see it coming in a way. They, They have to sort of hide away. Why? Because on that day, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. And the New Testament, again, points us to the cross when the shepherd was struck and the disciples scattered. Jesus speaks those words about the shepherd on the Mount of Olives just before he's betrayed by Judas and the disciples scatter. Which brings us to chapter 14. And we're left with a question. Is this dealing with the same period as chapters 12 and 13, so clearly alluded to in the New Testament, or does it move on to another time? Now, opinions have varied through history. Some have seen the destruction of Jerusalem here, being a reference to 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, this being chronologically after the events of the previous chapter. When the Romans attacked in 70 AD, they encamped on the Mount of Olives because it was the best viewpoint for Jerusalem. Others through time have seen it as the Greeks again in the time of the Maccabees, and that would fit with the context of earlier in the book. Some have seen it as being fulfilled in Christ during his life, the Mount of Olives playing a significant part in several of the stories. The foretelling of the destruction of the temple was there, for example. The visit on the night of his betrayal, his ascension to heaven from there. And the whole Bible being about Christ, that would fit, wouldn't it? Others have seen it more figuratively, The Mount of Olives being the place where God's glory departed uh, in Ezekiel 11. So Ezekiel 11, 23, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So God's glory departs from the temple to the Mount of Olives. So some have seen this then as being God's return, uh, God's glory returning to the city and to the temple. And that would fit in the encouraging them to build the temple that we've seen in the book as well. Others see it as a reference to the second coming. Jesus promised to return in the same way that he left. Well, he left from the Mount of Olives, and so he'll return to the Mount of Olives. The Feast of Booths is mentioned here, which was also the Harvest Festival and was linked to the second coming. There are variations of this view. Some see this as the very end. Others see this uh, as the beginning of an earthly reign of Christ for a thousand years. When I've been looking at it this week, I've seen Exodus motifs as we've been going through. The standing high on a mountain like Moses with his arms outstretched and the sun not going down. The splitting of not the sea but the mountain to provide a way of escape for his people. The plundering of the nations for their riches as they did in Egypt. The strange mention of Egypt for no apparent reason even though they're barely mentioned in the rest of the book. The mention of plagues. 
the celebration of the Feast of Booths, which commemorates their time in the wilderness. And here we stand where Luther feared to tread. And as I've been looking through, there's probably an element of truth in lots of them, aren't there? The New Testament, unfortunately, doesn't give us much help with this passage. It's not quoted anywhere in the New Testament. So I decided I'm going to fudge it and leave it for Steve uh, when he comes to, uh, to look at it. I should warn you, though, at Steve's pace, we may have had the second coming uh, before that happens. But I'm not entirely going to fudge it, because whatever stance we take, what we see in chapter 14 is God stepping in and rescuing his people, even in the midst of all their hardship and difficulty. So the original hearers were to get back building, even though it was hard, and even though there was more hardship to come. What they were doing was of eternal consequence. God would be with them as they built. God promised that one day he would dwell in their midst and save them from their enemies. So they were to keep hoping in God. The original hearers never got to see the fruit of their labors. God did not descend on the temple in a cloud of glory like he did with Moses and Solomon's at tabernacle and temple. But they'd been told that the temple would have a crown in it. This was part of the ongoing story that would lead up to Christ, the true temple coming and dwelling in our midst, who builds his church, the temple, out of living stones, us. And we join in that work as New Testament believers. And we're remembering that God rescues his people and is with us through the hardship. Like the first hearers, we acknowledge that it might be hard as we build. We go through opposition and hardship, but we keep building. We keep ministering the gospel to our world and to one another, knowing that our work too is of eternal consequence. And we know that when the Lord returns to bring his people safely home at last, we will be there with him. So let's keep building. Let's keep going in confident trust that God will sustain us as we build. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the book of Zechariah. Father, thank you that it did get the people back building. Father, thank you that the temple was built by that first generation. And Father, pray that as we read it, it would get us back building, keeping building, as we seek to be part um, of building your kingdom. Father, we know that it is Christ who builds the church, Christ who is doing it. But Father, we pray that you would use us and give us that, that supernatural sight that we are doing something eternal, that we're doing something of consequence. So keep us going, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.